everybody, it's Mittens with another episode of Supernatural George. Today we're going to be talking about Season 2, Episode 4, Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things, which is good advice, even though there are no children in this episode and the only dead things are zombies. Um, <laughs> still good advice. But yes, Supernatural has finally entered the world of zombies and various sort of revenant creatures. And in this case, the zombie is a sort of parallel for how Dean feels about himself right now. So there's going to be a lot to talk about about that. But it's also the first episode where we discover that Mary Winchester has a gravestone that was erected by an unknown family member of hers. We dig into a lot of family angst and stuff that I will try to avoid getting too deep into during this episode because 90% of what I want to talk about about it is stuff that doesn't even become relevant until much later seasons. You know what? I think that's going to be my first bonus special episode, Winchester Family History. I'd been planning on doing a bonus episode after season three about the cosmology of the supernatural universe, about angels in heaven and Chuck and creation and all the different realms of the supernatural universe that we know about and how they all tie together and remain relatively consistent in canon. I mean, there's tons of loopholes that I will explain how I mentally close that so that I can like continue to enjoy the show. Um, but I was going to plan, I was planning that for after season three before we start the heaven plot line. But I think this is going to be something I want to do at the end of season two, just a Winchester family tree, family archive, timeline, history kind of deal of what we know from all of canon about the Winchester family and the Campbell family. And I think that's important, but we first start getting to the root of it in this episode with Mary's gravestone and Sam burying John's dog tags there. I don't want to delve into timeline stuff that happens before and after canon or later in canon. And <sighs> gosh, isn't time travel just screw everything up? <laughs> uh. Anyway, so yeah, I'm not going to dig too deep into that in this episode, but we are going to at least skim over some of that because it's relevant to this episode. We also, uh, I don't think I mentioned, this episode was written by Raelle Tucker. This is the first episode that she's written solo, like the previous episode was Sarah Gamble's first solo. So the two of them will write together again in the future, but they each got their own separate episodes instead of writing as a team like they did through season one. It's also directed by Kim Manners, our one of our early favorite directors, and delves a little bit deeper into Dean's own sort of feeling about himself. I mean, when your your current character situation is paralleled in the Monster of the Week episode to the zombie creature, you're not feeling in a good headspace about yourself. <laughs> and Dean obviously is not. He feels wrong about how he was resurrected, but he's starting to open up to Sam about his suspicions about how he was saved and healed in the season premiere. 
he's not happy about it either. This is also the first episode where we get a mention of Casa Erotica porn. Um, We all know Casa Erotica is famous in Supernatural Universe for being a major porn franchise that even, you know, the Archangel Gabriel is involved in at some point later on in season five. But everybody seems to always associate all the porn stuff with Dean. But in this episode, I need everybody to really remember that Casa Erotica in this episode was what Sam was doing in his spare time. Sam was kind of humoring Dean. Dean was angry about Sam not believing him that there was a case in this town. And Sam's just like, yeah, you're just seeing monsters everywhere because you're so desperate to in your fifis about dad's death. And like, no, Sam, there's legit a case here. And you need to listen to Dean about this because this is real. It's happening. Meanwhile, Sam's the one back in the motel room watching Casa Erotica. So, you know, this wasn't originally a Dean thing. And there's a great post on my blog that I reblogged from Lizbob years ago about the fact that pretty much all the porn in the supernatural universe was created as a Sam reference or for Sam to be uh, partaking in Casa Erotica and Busty Asian Beauties both were created for Sam's character to engage with. And for some reason, Dean caught Sam at this both times and he sort of adopted it for himself or I don't know why the references shifted to everybody associates these things with Dean when they were created literally for Sam. So interesting concept of, you know, Dean was the one rolling his eyes at Sam in this episode for watching Casa Erotica. We'll talk more about that when we get to that scene, but I just needed to, to mention that. So people are aware of it going in. I'm also going to take a moment here to discuss a few interesting problems in canon that people have drawn from contents of this episode. In this episode, we see a glimpse of John's dog tags when Sam buries them on Mary's empty grave. And the dog tags give his blood type as AB. It doesn't say positive or negative, which Vietnam era dog tags did. So I don't know where these dog tags came from or why they are non-standard for Vietnam era dog tags and do not give a positive or negative RH factor descriptor on the tags because that's important information. But that was taken to be John's canonical blood type and later used in season 10 when Sam heals Dean from being a demon and gets a package of blood and it's I can't even remember what blood type it is now, but it's something that's non-compatible with AB blood type as a parent. And without even knowing, you know, I'll bring out your Punnett squares here. Um, apparently it's incompatible. I mean, technically it kind of is still, but Sam tells Dean, you know, I got, I even got your, your type of blood for the demon cure in season 10, episode three. And both of these, the only time it's never mentioned in dialogue, it's never stated what Dean's actual blood type is anywhere in canon, except that offhanded comment from Sam, which could have just meant, you know, your type is human or your type is 
not demonic or your type is not my blood type or whatever. We don't, we never find out why props gave him that blood type, knowing that that line existed. But prop mistakes happen all the time. There are inconsistencies on dates, on paperwork that people have zoomed in really close trying to see paperwork in many episodes, like a newspaper or I remember it being something in season 12. I think it's an American nightmare where uh, they're looking through case files of something. The dates on these cases are like well into the future and not even like possible to have happen. Like, are is that canonically the date? Because you you see other glimpses of things and it's like, well, that doesn't make any sense. Why don't these dates line up at all? Well, it's because the props department created these and they may not have been paying attention to the details and just slapped a random date on there or typo or something. I don't know. But even within this episode, there are inconsistencies with the dates. Angela's phone, the day she crashes her car in the opening in the cold open, says it's August 22nd, 2006. We know that three days later is when Sam and Dean show up and are at the graveyard. And the monument at Angela's grave, there's a little placard there that says, date completed August 7th. uh, Oh, no, wait. August 12th, Canadian dates. So even the dates are backwards and written in the non-American way of putting the day, then the month, then the year. So it's 12807. And the only reason I know that these dates are written that way is because the other part of the sign says monument completed 19907. So August 12th, 2007 and September 19th, 2007. What are these dates that are over a year in the future from when this episode supposedly takes place in August of 2006? We don't know. We don't know why those dates were applied or put on these props in this episode when they're a year in the future. So, like, is it a typo? Is it obviously whoever wrote that sign is Canadian and not American, even though this graveyard is supposedly in Illinois. Why is Mary's grave even in Illinois? Like, randomly in Illinois. She lived in Kansas. Which of her family members would put up a grave marker for her in some random town in Illinois. Why? Is that where they lived? Did Sam and Dean have family there that, you know, they didn't know personally, but could have checked in with or gone to see or visit or whatever, and just didn't even mention that this family still exists? Did the family disappear or die since 2000, uh, since 1993, when Mary died and they put the monument up? None of this adds up in timeline and makes any sense at all. So it makes it really hard for me to give too much credence to what John's blood type was on his military dog tags, because even the dog tags aren't standard issue from the U.S. government during the Vietnam era. They don't. (laughs) That's not what they looked like. So whatever, How how, how much weight you want to give to random props created for the show that obviously didn't get double-checked before later props were made and later comments about things like blood type and family members and 
death dates and things like that. It just, it doesn't always line up and trying to make it line up without saying, oh, it was probably a typo is going to drive you mad because it doesn't. None of it adds up if you look too hard at it. Just because, you know, the show was made by hundreds of individuals who were doing their best, you know. But whenever you get more than a few people together to do something, things get lost in translation and details that the person who creates the thing might not be aware of, even though they probably should have been given better information before they were told to create the thing. But I don't know that and anyone ever thought John's blood type would ever become relevant later in the series. And probably nobody realized that people could actually read the dog tags from this way earlier episode and that his blood type was on them by the time they get to season 10, eight years later. It may have even been a different props crew entirely that made the dog tag, that made the blood bags and the dog tags. There was never any reference to Dean's blood type anywhere in canon before this. So, could it have just been a joke by Sam? Probably. I suppose I'm just going into all of this right now just as a reminder to take stuff, visual stuff in the show with at least a tiny bit of grain of salt because sometimes it just makes no sense. But usually it's not consequential stuff. Like you could argue all day about Dean's parentage and if it really was John, well, it had to have been because otherwise the whole apocalypse prophecy would have been for naught. Like the entire basis of all of the cosmic shit on the show would have been baseless. So you've got to weigh the validity of some of the stuff that you could theoretically argue about. And yeah, but that takes you way off into headcanon land. And I try not to live there. <laughs> it's fun for fanfic. It's not for talking about the show as a consistent narrative in universe. It just doesn't work and it makes everything fall apart. So not that I'm just ignoring what I don't think fits or that I'm just glossing over it because here I am talking about it actively, not glossing over it, but explaining why I don't put too much weight on it because you have to at least a little bit factor in the fact that yes, these are props for a TV show and the dates are never acknowledged in text. They're never acknowledged in canon other than as visuals on props. And sometimes people just fuck up. <laughs> like they were off by a whole year plus on the, the grave marker sign. So something is not right about that. So do with it what you will. I try not to give too much attention or weight to it because it tends to be little background things that I think at this point in the series anyway, I don't think people realized how, just how closely fans were going to look at it. Like pause the TV, walk up to the screen and like look really closely at every last little detail that wasn't blurry on screen. <laughs> so as the show began to get that reputation and fandom began to get that reputation for looking that closely, that's when they started including little Easter eggs for us. And when they started getting a little bit better, not always, but a lot of the time getting better about putting dates and other relevant details on props. So especially in early days, there's often just total what the fuck. So that's what I chalk this up to and don't really put too much narrative weight on random details like that that conflict with like everything else we know about canon. So onward. <laughs> 
<laughs> One more comment about random weird details is we know that this tombstone that Sam and Dean have somehow heard about, even if they didn't know the person who erected it, who was Mary's uncle, not their uncle, Mary's uncle. There's a post that went around a while ago that is fascinating if it were based in actual reality, but it's not (laughs) that it was Sam and Dean's uncle. So therefore it must have been John's brother. And there's just so much assumption going on in that post that I'm not even going to go further into it. But it wasn't Sam and Dean's uncle. It wasn't John's brother. It was Mary's uncle. So either Deanna or Samuel Campbell's brother who erected this tombstone to her. And we know late from much later canon that the Campbell family were all hunters. So we won't find that out until season four that Mary was raised a hunter, that she knew all about hunting. And that any relative of Samuel or Deanna was probably a hunter as well. So what drove them to erect this headstone for Mary while John was still alive that John never took them to visit, but told them existed. So John was obviously in contact with someone because they knew that this tombstone existed. Somebody told them it did, but John kept them away from it. Did he discover Mary's hunting family legacy? Like what on earth? Why was this tombstone erected and they just never went to see it? It's just weird that Someone Mary wasn't close enough to for her children to have ever met this uncle. Just put up a, you know, that shit ain't, it's not cheap. (laughs) I don't know if any of you have ever planned a funeral, but it's fucking not cheap. (laughs) Like, it doesn't seem like the sort of thing you would do to bury an empty coffin and just have a marker in a graveyard for somebody. You know, it's just, why? Why? (laughs) why would they have gone to this expense and trouble to put a grave marker in a city where Mary never even lived? We knew she was from Lawrence, Kansas. Why erect this in some random town in Illinois? It's baffling and boggling and it's never explained, even though we will return to this graveyard in season 11, episode 23. That's where they'll be preparing for Dean to go meet with Amara to, with the soul bomb in him. And gives his final farewells to Sam and Cass. And it's weird that there's any attachment at all to Mary's grave when she's not buried there. It's just weird. But it exists in canon. So some weird uncle of the Campbells erected this grave for some reason randomly. And Sam and Dean have emotions about this piece of rock that was erected by someone they never met just because it has Mary's name carved into it. It sort of feels like the pedestal to St. Mary to me, that so much of how Mary is built up in canon before she will eventually come back rests on this metaphorical pedestal of her tomb above an empty coffin. Like there's no, there's no there there. It's, a complete mystery it exists like as its own thing and this like sacred shrine that actually symbolizes nothing and that's so good for how <laughs> when she does finally come back to the narrative she gets to show us finally the substance behind that shrine and we get to see who she is as a person because right now she's not a person 
she's a piece of rock with a name carved in it over an empty grave. So good metaphor there. (laughs) No wonder Dean doesn't want to see it in this episode. He resists going to it. It's like he can't face it because he knows the, the lie of the shrine. He knows there's no there there. And it's worse than to him than just holding on to her memory and not having to confront that. I think the only other thing I need to mention before we start this episode is that we do have casting sides for a couple of the characters for Angela, the zombie girl, and for Neil, the boy who or guy, man, dude, college age kid who raised her from the dead. The scripts are dated a few weeks apart, so there was massive changes. There's a couple scenes that they have in common where they both got those scenes in their casting sides, like the opening scene of the entire episode that you can clearly see evolve from the Neil version of the casting sides to the Angela version that was written like four or five weeks later, I think. I can't remember the dates, but... They're on the casting sides, and I'll link those so you can read them. But the second version of it is much more similar to what we actually saw in the episode, but still paints Neil in a slightly better light than the episode actually does, and at least makes him look like more of a noble character than he actually turns out to be. I mean, obviously, regardless of either script, I think he doesn't come off as particularly noble at all (laughs) but the earlier versions just show him at least like standing up to the guy rather than just being kind of trampled by the guy which is what we actually see happen the other change from both casting sides is towards the end when neil is trying to get away after he realizes that yes angela did kill all these people and no this really isn't the girl that i fell in love with anymore that she's a monster now he tries to get away and both of their scenes, even though they're slightly different, involve her actually hiding in the backseat of his car and killing him as after he drives away. So he doesn't even make it that far in actual what happened in canon, probably because they couldn't afford another driving shot in this episode or something like that or didn't have time for it. But they have him just fumbling his keys and her killing him in the parking lot before he can even get in his car. So slight change there, but nothing that really dramatically affects the the script. But it's one of those things that you can see that probably changed during production as a, well, we only have X number of hours to film this entire scene. We don't have time to set up the whole driving rig and, and all of that just to get this one scene she can kill him in the parking lot no big and doesn't take anything away from the episode at all so changes like that that are probably due to production issues interesting to note where that happens because sometimes even more major changes have to be made to a script so just based on production timing cost efficiency running out of time to do something or resources to do something so Interesting to note when that does happen in a way that doesn't affect the script versus when it changes something essential that that has to be accounted for elsewhere. So when you're writing an episode like this, there are things that you know are not going to make it into the final version, even if you love them and really want them to be this way, because him dying behind the wheel of the car parallels how she died behind the wheel of a car. And it 
would have been an interesting shot, but compromises have to be made sometimes. And choosing which shot to get rid of versus keep is sometimes a dicey proposition in editing and or in production where they have to, you know, the scene in uh, in The French Mistake where they're talking about up oh, season six, you know, will we, these are our options we have because we didn't get the shot the first time. We can either waste 45 minutes in the expense of creating a whole new window for them to jump through, but we'd have to cut the scene of them at the end of the episode because they just would run out of time to film it. So they, they're like, yeah, whatever, season six, it is what it is, freeze frame. You know, sometimes things like that just have to happen. So they have to make choices sometimes very quickly about how things happen. So I'm guessing that this was a production deal in this case. Sometimes that's just how it goes. Learning how the sausage is made. That said, let's move on to the then segment. The then segment starts off with, oddly enough, saving people hunting things, the family business. And a recap of a few times that Sam and Dean have done that, going back to dead in the water, and then basically zooms through to John's deal, John telling Dean in the hospital that he's proud of him, although they deliberately left out any mention of the bird, the secret that John whispered in Dean's ear. This isn't about that this week. That was last week, and now that's on the back burner because finally we're going to confront Dean's feelings about John's death. And basically after that scene, we see Dean angry, 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 and then angry. And it's just basically Dean yelling that he's okay, you know, taking out his frustrations on on the car and just Dean being angry. (laughs) So we know that Dean is angry. (laughs) Baseline for this episode, that's the information we're going to focus on today. Not that he's grieving John, that he's angry, which is an interesting choice, that he's not sad, he doesn't miss John the way that Sam seems to have grief and regret about John's death. Dean feels guilt and anger, and this week we're going to explore both through this episode, through a zombie what Dean feels like right now because he can't even begin to feel like you know, this is the episode where he will repeat over and over what's dead should stay dead because he feels like he should have stayed dead and that John should have lived and that's another thing that's going to get hammered into him this year this season in the show that John should have lived and Dean should have died but deals were made and Dean does not feel like he's worthy of them having been made. Why him? Why did he get to live and John had to die? John was the one who knew what was going on with the demon. John could have protected Sam better than Dean can because Dean doesn't know if he's going to be able to follow John's orders. He doesn't know if he's going to be able to not fail Sam. Can he save Sam? And what will he have to sacrifice of himself in order to do that when he has sacrificed so much already? So yeah, he's angry and he's guilty because he feels like if it wasn't for him, John would still be alive right now. If John hadn't had to trade his life to save Dean's, he would still be alive and that would have been a better situation. So poor Dean has like zero (laughs) self-worth, but also 
guilt and anger. Sam has porn, I guess. I don't know. But Sam, Sam feels guilty for other things. He feels guilty that he started this argument with John. He feels guilty that he was a quote unquote bad son to John and started arguments at every turn and, and ran away from home and didn't want to be part of the family and resisted John's orders his whole life. And it's like, dude, Dean wanted that for you. He wanted you to be able to have your life and live it the way you wanted to. He wanted you to be happy and content because he never could be. So one of you should have been. So Sam's guilt in this case is just compounding Dean's. Like I failed him in every way. He already feels like he's failed Sam. And that's just pathetic and sad and awful. So let's just rip our hearts out right now and we can skip this one. No, no, we're going to, we're going to watch this one. (laughs) Unfortunately, (laughs) let's all be sad together. The cold open starts in Neil's kitchen where he's clearly comforting Angela through some sort of emotional crisis here. He's offering her beer, chocolate. He's got a baggie of candy he gives her and tortured emo rock on the radio. And they're sitting across the kitchen table from each other with his what's supposed to be comfort food item gift of his time, attention and care for her wrapped up in a couple bottles of beer and some M&Ms. So (laughs) right off we see though that Angela is dressed in our standard tortured woman white. She's got what could be a white nightgown if she wasn't like If she was at her own home, I would say this was a white nightgown, but it's not. It's actually clothes. But she's sitting there with her little white ruffly top looking all innocent and pure. And we learn that she's been dumped by or that her boyfriend cheated on her and she's tried to dump him and he's being demanding and apologetic and he wants her to come back to him. And it's a bad situation. And Neil is right that he's a crap dude she should be glad she's rid of him and she reaches across the table and holds his hands and he looks down and you could tell that he's pining for this woman so hard and she just feels like she even says you know you're such a good friend so she doesn't think of him as a romantic potential he's just brotherly or friendly to her in at this point neil just isn't willing to say anything or make an ovation which is nice on the surface but we'll see his true intent later on Angela's boyfriend Matt comes to the door banging on the door demanding to, to speak to her he's angry he's in a bad mood and we'll find out later that she wants to break up with him because he cheated on her with her roommate which super classy there Matt but he's all indignant and is demanding that she talk to him or at least listen to hear him out and he's trying to apologize to her for doing it and I mean he sounds like kind of a jerk but he won't give her space so while Neil is unable to keep Matt from barging into their into his home Angela sneaks out the back and gets in her car and drives away and she's all sobbing and crying and as she's driving through the dark her phone rings and she pulls her phone out of her purse and actually answers it like maybe emotionally unstable speeding along a deserted road late at night is not the best time to 
also answer your phone and continue driving, but she does because she's emotionally unstable, clearly. And Matt's like, just listen to me. And she's like, she's done listening to him. She keeps looking down like because she's sobbing and talking to Matt and he's just being a jerk. And she just continues to drive and swerve and her tires are squealing on the road. And the last words she gets out before her car veers off the road, crashes through a barrier and into a rock wall are I love you to Matt. It's the last words she'll ever say. Because the crash kills her. She should have been wearing her seatbelt. Oh, well. (laughs) Or at least, like, not sobbing and driving. Sobbing and driving is a bad combo. Don't do it. (laughs) Anyway, title card. The first thing we see after the title card is the Impala zooming down a highway. Dean's at the wheel. And the first words we hear him say are trying to talk Sam out of something. Come on, man, this is stupid. And it's like, well, Dean, if you weren't at least somewhat committed to the stupid thing, you wouldn't be driving them there. Like, you're literally in control of the car and you could choose to not drive there. Like, Sam could do whatever he wants. He's a grown man. He knows how to drive a car. He could steal a car, get a car somehow and drive himself if he really was that desperate to go. But... You are literally in control of what is happening here. (laughs) Driving to the cemetery that you're saying you don't want to go to. And he describes his reasons why. To see a a headstone, it's not even a grave. Sam called it a grave and Dean's like, it's not even a grave. It's just a headstone put up in, in a random cemetery by a Mary's relative that they've never even met. There's no substance to that for Dean. But for Sam who doesn't have any memories of Mary, this feels important to him after John's death to go to the only memorial on earth to Mary now at this point. Her spirit's been banished from their house and there's nothing left of her on earth aside from them and this gravestone. So he wants to go see it. I don't know if they've ever been there in the past or John took them there at some point because they know where it is, but somebody somewhere along the line, told them it exists and where it is. So they're going. And Dean is dragging his heels every step of the way. It feels pointless to him. And I don't blame him. I mean, he has actual memories of Mary. And what is this but just a random slab of granite with her name carved in it? It doesn't have any meaning for him. Dean suggests the alternate course of action of going back to the roadhouse and checking in to see if there's any activity on the demon yet. And Ash promised he'd call them as soon as there was, and they haven't heard anything. So Dean's just trying to figure out something to burn time at this point. What are they going to do if they find the demon anyways? They don't have a weapon to use against it. Sort of just knowledge on where it is is all they could have. And they don't even have that. So... When Sam's like, oh, yeah, you go on ahead. I'll steal a car and meet you up there tomorrow. And Dean's like uncomfortable about that. He doesn't want to be in a room with a bunch of strangers, he says, for a day without Sam. So Dean's committed to stick together because to Dean, it's about the family you have that's living that he can actually still protect. And he's going to do that if he can. I think it's interesting that the title of the episode flashes up. Children shouldn't play with dead things as Sam is digging a little hole in the dirt in front of Mary's headstone. 
he's bearing John's dog tags there. And it's like, children shouldn't play with dead things. Yeah, well, Mary Winchester is one of those dead things and Sam is her child. So kind of like interesting shot there. Thanks, Kim Manners. Even though he probably didn't know that that was the shot that the actual episode title would fall over. It's very convenient. While Sam is busy, we see Dean standing a distance away, just looking down at a headstone. We get a good shot of the headstone. It just says, loving father at rest. And Dean's looking at that like dissatisfied and upset and uncomfortable with the concept of loving father at rest. Because John is at rest now or whatever. He's dead. And was he the loving father that they honored with a headstone in a cemetery? (laughs) Or did Sam just bury his military dog tags in the ground in front of Mary's headstone? But Dean is looking around the graveyard and spots a strangely dead tree by a fresh grave marker that doesn't even have a tombstone yet. It just has a little placard on the ground where some where a body has just been freshly buried and a whole big circle around it of dead grass encompassing this dead tree. He goes to investigate because, of course, he does. Dean talks to the groundskeeper at the cemetery who has no explanation for this girl who was only buried three days ago for why the grass is completely dead in a perfect circle around her grave, including a big tree that was alive three days ago. Something terrible happened here. Sam is trying to poo-poo every suggestion Dean offers us to, to explain why. And Dean's like, well, you dragged me out here. The least you can do is go along with this investigation. And Sam thinks that Dean is just making this up to cover up his feelings or make some excuse about why he's there. He thinks it's too convenient that a hunt would happen at this location when they're there. Like it just doesn't make sense to him. It's too coincidental. As we know in this show, there's no such thing as too coincidental. Like even post Chuck reveal, this makes sense. This is pushing their issues on them at the time when they need to experience them. I mean, that's monster of every monster of the week episode ever, right? Gives them a chance to confront their own personal torment that they're going through at the time. And of course, a zombie is exactly how Dean feels revived from the dead, but not whole missing a piece. We'll go more into that and Dean's reactions to it after this next scene where they go to interview Sam grudgingly. They go to interview the girl's father, who is a professor at the local university. Dean proceeds to ask questions about, like, do you still feel her presence around? Like, and Sam glares at him and says, that's perfectly normal, especially with what you're going through, having lost your daughter. And the father is just exhibiting genuine parental feelings of loss about his daughter. And Dean, of course, knows there's a case there, but the way he talks about losing his daughter also applies to how John felt in the season premiere about the possibility of losing Dean, of Dean dying because of this whole life of hunting that John had dragged them into and brought them into. And John could not, as a parent, bear that, that losing Dean was too much. And so, of course, Dean immediately suspects that whatever is going on here has to do with the girl's father because that's his personal situation with 
his father. And remember in this in this metaphor, Dean is the zombie girl <laughs> whose father he believes resurrected her through some unholy ritual. He's a professor of Greek studies. Dean finds an odd old ancient Greek text. And in that text is a ritual that can raise the dead, supposedly. Again, this universe's mythology versus our universe's mythology doesn't always line up right. While we're talking about their universe versus ours, Greenville, Illinois is a place in our universe, and there is a university there. So that actually lines up. Woo! (laughs) For once, even if nothing else about the episode is realistic, like we don't have zombies and ancient Greek rituals that raise the dead and whatever, but, you know, roll with it. It's fantasy. Sam is insistent that there's nothing to investigate here. It's a poor girl who died in a car accident he doesn't believe that what Dean saw in the graveyard made it unholy ground. Sam's just like, you're reaching. You're, we should never have bothered this man. He's suffering enough. You're grasping at nothing here, Dean, basically. He's sympathetic to this man's grief, but not at all sympathetic to Dean's. Meanwhile, Sam is kind of pitying Dean here, and Dean hates it. The... I think I know what's going on here. You're making up this hunt so you don't have to face mom's death or dad. And it's just like, dude, Sam, are you that obnoxiously self-involved here that you can't understand that Dean actually found a legitimate hunt and is not as emotionally compromised as you're chalking him up to be and being kind of patronizing and kind of a dick to him by doing so thinking you're being kind he's like the only reason I've, I've gone along with it so far is because you know you're suffering you, you need you need to be handled with kid gloves like dude Sam just because you're you want to visit the empty stone grave marker that means nothing emotionally to Dean. Just because you wanted to visit that doesn't mean that Dean's as emotionally compromised as you feel you are. That's like, man, sometimes I want to strangle Sam for being emotionally unaware of other people. (laughs) But he totally misses the point here. And Dean uses one of his patented Dean excuses where he says, I'm going for a drink alone. How many times during this series have we seen him storm out or leave and be like, yeah, I'm off. I'm going to go get a drink. I'm going to a bar or whatever. And he doesn't go to a bar or we don't see him go to a bar. He literally, in this case, shows us what he does when he tells Sam he's going out for a drink because Sam won't follow him to a bar where he thinks Dean's just going to get drunk and hit on people or whatever or blow off some steam or whatever. Sam doesn't follow him. He's like, just pities him and lets him go. Dean, of course, has no intention of going out to get a drink. He has better things to do, like find enough evidence to figure out what's going on with this unholy ground at this gravesite, because it is unholy ground. He's right. Sam's blinded to that fact because he thinks Dean is emotionally compromised. Dean's not. He's just found a case. Scene leaves and we cut to a scene of Matt, Angela's boyfriend, watching home movies of the two of them. She's wearing the same blouse she was wearing in the home movie as the night she died, the white blouse. 
And they're just frolicking in the video together, clearly happily together. And now he regrets everything that happened between them. So he's reminiscing and watching old movies of them. And in the most unbelievable thing that I've seen so far in this episode, this college dude has a houseplant on his coffee table. Like, okay, that's just random. I don't, I've never met like a college guy with the houseplant on his coffee table. Okay, but we'll go with that because it shows us that as he gets up to get another beer, while he's gone, the houseplant just withers and dies like in one shot. And we know that's the sign of the unholy ground where the grass was all dead and it killed a tree. Well, now it's also killed his houseplant. He sits back down and he's got it freeze framed on his girlfriend's face. And as he's watching the screen and just looking at her face, you see a reflection of her appear in the background in a white dress. And he realizes she's in the room with him. He turns around and always sees a blood splatter that we know he's dead now. The blood splatters across the screen showing his girlfriend's face. So (sighs) rest in pieces, Matt. The next day we see Dean breaking into Angela's place to find out what he can about her. We see him break in with a credit card in the door lock and go over and look at some framed photos of Angela picks up the photo, is looking at her face the same way Matt was looking at the TV screen of her face. And the reflection of a woman appears in the glass in the frame. And Dean, of course, startled by this, he turns around and finds Angela's roommate. Thank God it's not Angela. (laughs) Dean thinks fast and makes up an excuse that he's only in the apartment because he's Angela's cousin and her father asked him to come by and get some of her things and the girl her roommate is like why he didn't tell me that and Dean passes it all off gives a fake name Alan Stanwyck who is like the main bad if probably people listening to this haven't seen the movie Fletch (laughs) but he's the main bad guy character in Fletch (laughs) from like a million years ago Chevy Chase movie really hilarious or it was at least like 30 years ago when I, when I last saw it but yeah Alan Stanwyck's the main antagonist of the movie who tries to hire Fletch at the beginning of the movie supposedly to kill him for his wife to collect the insurance money on him but it's all a big setup and there's a big scam and drug dealers and everything but regardless that's the plot so Dean already is using a guy who tried to pay somebody to kill him as his alias, which is probably not a good look for Dean in the zombie episode. But Angela's roommate buys his story because Dean's very convincing when he wants to be. Dean finds out a little bit more information about Angela. The girl was going through tissues at an enormous rate. And the best thing she could say about Angela was that she was great over and over again. (laughs) Just sobbing and then talking about it's not just Angela it's Matt and explained that Angela's boyfriend had been seeing her for a couple of days like an acid trip seeing her everywhere for a couple of days and he was really messed up about her death and that he killed himself the night before cut his own throat who even does that she says Dean obviously realizes this is not normal at all. Nobody does that. Nobody cuts their own throat to kill themselves. 
And even Dean tried to use the same line that Sam did to Angela's father about how it's normal to feel like you're seeing your loved one with the emotional stress of their loss weighing on you. And the roommate insisted, like, double down on it. No, he thought he was seeing her, like, everywhere. So it was freaking him out. It wasn't comforting, like, like the father who talked about dialing the phone to call her and then and forgetting that it wouldn't connect because she's not there to answer it anymore. This is legitimately the guy was freaked out by it and scared of seeing her everywhere. So Dean asks her where Matt lived and goes to investigate. We return back to the motel where Sam's sitting on the rumpled bed watching the skin channel and (laughs) Casa Erotica, like he's just leaned over intently watching the screen and Dean walks in and awkward, awkward to the point where Dean even says awkward and walks in and drapes his coat over the TV like he can make it go away even more if he hides it under his coat. (laughs) There's like a little hot triple X card on top of the TV, like advertising the skin channel or whatever pay-per-view. It's it's like framed in the shot with Dean, even though it was Sam watching it. Dean's trying to cover it up. He's like, no, I was investigating my imaginary case and found all kinds of useful information about a case that's not imaginary, Sam. Unlike the Casa Erotica women who are completely imaginary, Sam. Dean lays out the evidence in a grumpy and sarcastic fashion. And Sam's like, okay, well, maybe there is a case. And Dean's like, you think? I know how to do my job. I'm not just transferring my own feelings onto this random set of coincidences. I'm, you know, actively doing my job, which is to identify supernatural things that are killing people and stop that from happening. Sam is finally like, okay, well, maybe we should go check out his place. And Dean's like, well, I just came from there because I apparently have to do all the work while you sit here watching porn. The one thing Dean, as Alan Stanwyck, did take from Angela's apartment was her diary and discovered who her closest friend was, Neil. There wasn't anything juicy or meaty or nasty in her diary, but her best friend, her closest friend and confidant, might know the dirty details. So they go talk to Neil, posing as grief counselors hired by the college, which is hilarious because these two guys who are who've been literally arguing about talking about their personal grief for the last three episodes are now posing as grief counselors to let somebody else talk about their grief. Neil reveals that if Matt killed himself, you know, they say their grief counselors here concerned because if Matt offed himself, other people close to Angela may do the same. And so they're trying to prevent any more grief from being necessary in this small community here. And Neil's like, well, if Matt killed himself, it wasn't out of grief. It was out of guilt. So here we now have grief and guilt woven together because grief is mistaken for guilt. That's Sam's doing to Dean. He doesn't see that Dean feels guilty. He thinks Dean's grieving, which is a very different thing. Dean feels guilty for John's death. Dean understands this, though, that Matt felt guilty because the night that Angela died, she walked in on him with another girl. So 
betrayal, heartbreak, raw emotions. He believed it was his fault that she was dead, which is like Dean believes it was his fault that John is now dead. Same concept. So Dean is not only being paralleled to the vengeful spirit here, but also Matt. Dean's now believing that the way she died could have left her a vengeful spirit, that she was seeking her revenge on Matt for being the cause of her death. So that would make sense at this point. If she was a very powerful vengeful spirit, how she could have caused the death of the plants and escaped her grave and et cetera, et cetera. And that salting and burning her bones could stop this. And Sam's like, you're cra- are you crazy? She's only been dead for five days. It's not going to be bones. It's going to be a rotting body in the ground. And Dean's like, what, are you afraid to get a little dirty? So I-, I like how Sam actually first asks, are you high? And Dean makes a face like he's thinking about it. Like, yeah, maybe, maybe I am. So drug use reference for Dean there that I don't think he would actually be drugged off his mind in while he's working a case, especially one that he's having to fight against Sam to work and prove his point. I don't think he would let himself get compromised by any sort of drug use at this point. But the fact that he makes that little, mm, I'm thinking about it face, says a lot more about Dean overall than it does in that specific moment. I just have to point out as they're digging the grave that night, They've got their perfect rectangular grave, which who the heck can dig a grave like that with a shovel? And remember that Sam's wrist or Jared's wrist is actually broken at this point, and he doesn't really know it yet. And you can watch him just favoring his his arm and just sort of wincing periodically that could pass as like wincing because, you know, I've been digging this grave all night, but it's wincing because ow my arm really hurts and I can barely hold this flashlight I'm trying to point down into the grave because my job is to act and hold the flashlight like this (laughs) so poor guy he's in a lot of pain here and it's real pain they finally get the grave open and the casket is empty empty casket we flash back to Neil's house where he unbolts a heavy bolt on a door a bolt like most people don't have on their doors in the inside of their house, goes downstairs and waiting for him in the basement is Angela, looking slightly cadaverous and wearing the white dress slash nightgown look of all dead women in this show for some reason. So they managed to get that one in there. I'm assuming it was the dress she was buried in and she just hasn't changed. But yeah, she'd just been sitting there in the dark by herself she gets up when matt when neil comes in walks over to him says she missed him and kisses him and he kisses her back and it's just like we know what their interactions were like how matt i mean neil i keep getting him confused with matt the bad ex-boyfriend who slit his own throat haha no we saw their interaction at the beginning of the episode when he was the comfort best friend who she thought of as a friend only and he had clearly harbored deeper feelings for her romantic feelings for her and now all of a sudden he finally has that she's eager to smooch on him and it's like whoa okay so you brought you raised her from the dead which dean had originally accused the father of doing 
just to have corpse girlfriend. Mm, what kind of free will does she have or is she using him? It's like really creepy, creepy just on every level. How much control of their life does the resurrected have here? Dean is wondering about himself as well. He's still got John's orders that he's still living by because he doesn't have a choice because he doesn't have anything else he can do other than wait to see if Sam turns evil and he has to kill him. Does Dean really have his own life here yet? He's still the zombie girl. We flash back to the cemetery where Sam and Dean are investigating the coffin. There's some strange symbols scratched into the inside lid of the coffin, like Greek symbols. And Dean recognizes them from the book of weird old Greek stuff in Angela's father's house. So Dean thinks he's figured out the whole mess. He figures her father knows how to do it, had the resources and literature to do it, and brought his daughter back from the dead. And Dean is furious about that because everything that he's about to say to Angela's father is what he would yell in John's face if he had the chance right now. But he can't yell it at John. This is Dean venting his personal feelings. This is what Sam needs to pay attention to here. Dean is showing remarkable restraint as he uh, begins this interview with Angela's father. Shows him the drawing or a tracing of, of the Greek carved into the top of Angela's coffin and asks if he could explain what it means the man's like, I don't understand. You said this has something to do with Angela. And Dean is actually kind at this point. He's like, just just humor me. And so the man translates it. The man describes it as an ancient Greek divination ritual. And Dean's like, yeah, necromancy, talking to the dead or even raising zombies. And the man's like, folds it up. And he's concerned and confused by Dean now at this point and wary Like, I don't know what you're talking about. And Dean's like, I think you do. And then Dean vents all the anger he's had at John since he woke up in the hospital in the season premiere episode. He's been holding on to this anger so closely and this guilt over what John sacrificed to raise him from the dead in his mind. That's how he feels about this. What's dead should stay dead. That he yells in this poor grieving man's face. This man who is totally innocent and knew nothing about this and did nothing evil and traded nothing and is just grieving the loss of his child. As far as he knows, his child is fully dead and in the ground, in the graveyard. He has no idea she's up and about. But Dean is just blinded to that by his own guilt and anger at his own father. This is just somebody else's convenient father to yell at for him. So Sam's right to drag him out of there when he does and absolutely right to stop Dean from yelling in this poor man's face. But Dean's getting his issues out at least and we're seeing them more clearly now and Sam should be but instead of actually listening to what Dean was saying and understanding something about what Dean's going through he's just angry at Dean for being so mean to this guy for no reason like he's going off the rails and it's and he's yeah 
He is. He's kind of scaring everybody right now, including Sam and himself a little bit. Dean gets all up in his face, yells at him about what's dead should stay dead. Haven't you seen Pet Cemetery? And like just yelling at the guy. The guy picks up his phone and is like, I'm calling the police, you know, because he's being threatened and attacked in his own home for no reason. Dean grabs the phone out of his hand and hangs it up. And Sam finally has to drag him out of there saying, pointing out the living plants. <laughs> Look, healthy living plants. And oh my God, the memes about botanist Sam, you know, identifying demonic presences and stuff through houseplants. It's just <laughs> having a flashback to botany Sam. But Sam's right. He's looking at all the evidence and not just gone in with blinders on because Dean thinks he solved it. Even after he drags Dean out, Sam's like, that man doesn't deserve that. He's innocent. And Dean's like, yeah, well, maybe he's not keeping her here. Maybe he's keeping her somewhere else. Like, he's still convinced that this father raised his daughter out of grief for her death, just like John did to him. And traded his own life for it and he can't yell at John so he can yell at this guy but that's not what happened and Sam is right Dean's blinded himself to I mean he found this case he zeroed in on this case and caught it and got all the clues and built all the evidence but he hasn't got the full picture yet and he's unable to get past this false lead of the girl's father because that's the lead that he, as his own zombie in this case, identifies with. That he identifies as the source of this problem, is the father. And he cannot see another motive for this. But now they have to get out of there and Dean's like, yes, I know I'm being an ass and I know I'm, but, you know, we've got this friggin' zombie to find. And that at least finally breaks the tension between him and Sam, at least for now. They table their discussion about Dean's mental health and need to talk it out or whatever. Because Sam still thinks Dean's grieving his father? No. We need to wait till the end of the episode to find out how that resolves. Because right now they've got a zombie to kill. There's one thing that Sam says to Dean in this little lecture here that I take issue with and Dean takes issue with. Well, Dean takes issue with everything Sam's saying because he doesn't want to talk to Sam about his problems right now but Sam says you're lucky this turned out to be a real case because otherwise you would have just found something else to kill and that is saying to Dean exactly what Gordon was last week you're a killer Dean you take pleasure in it that's how you find your it's not a you shouldn't be ashamed to need your job and Gordon was saying you're just like me and Dean is like maybe I am maybe I'm not well, Dean, no, you're not just like him. Now, Sam is saying, yes, I see that you are just like that. You are a killer. You will go out and kill something to make yourself feel better instead of dealing with your problems. And it's one thing to hear that from Gordon, who doesn't know Dean. But to Sam, who claims to know Dean and who Dean, the line that got cut last week of you don't know me. Sam really doesn't know Dean if he had was callous enough to say that to Dean. You would have just found something else to kill. And that line right there, make, I, if I was Dean, I would have slapped Sam across the face for saying that. <laughs> but Dean has more restraint than that. And 
yes, he might be upset here and dealing with a lot of shit that Sam has no clue about yet. And Sam won't even get the full picture for another few episodes. But Dean is not that. He's not just looking for something to kill. He's doing his job, like he keeps saying. He's trying to, anyway. And, yeah, he's messed up about it. And Sam could redirect without giving Dean this lecture here in this particular way. But he hits a couple of big red buttons for Dean. And that's the biggest one of them all. We then cut to Angela sitting in Neil's living room. He's concerned that the way Matt died, that she may have had something to do with it. He asks her if she went out to see him, and she insists that no, she's been inside his house the whole time, that she promised him she wouldn't leave, so she's still there. And it's like, haven't we talked about him enough? I know that you're the only one who ever loved me, and because you brought me back, she kisses him and climbs in his lap and you, you enough kissing corpse girl. The, <laughs> I'm so sorry. That's like, ugh. anyway, he's brought her back because he loved her and he always just wanted her to love him back. And now she does supposedly, even though she's a corpse who's like out there murdering people and lying to him about it. Meanwhile, back at the Winchester's motel, Sam has been reading through John's journal looking for information on how to kill zombies and re- or the walking dead of any kind. And Dean's like, what, you can't find any lore? You know, gunshot to the head won't do it. And Sam's like, the problem isn't that there's no lore. The problem is there's too much. There's so many different legends about zombies in different cultures all around the world and throughout history. And so many of them have wildly different solutions to dealing with the zombies. He can't figure out what will actually work on this particular zombie. Meanwhile, Dean's been reading Angela's journal and he managed to clear his head of the father. He believes the father's not guilty. Now he thinks it's Neil, that unrequited love, that whole He's such a shoulder to cry on that Angela wrote about him in her journal. It was clear from her journal that she didn't love him, but the way Dean could read into his actions through her words made it clear to him that this guy has a major crush on her. And he's her father's teaching assistant. So has access to all the same spells and books and information that Angela's father, the professor, had. So he is a most viable candidate for having brought her back. They let themselves into Neil's house and Dean calls out, hey, Neil, it's your grief counselors. We've come to hug. And (laughs) I'm sorry, that's just, (laughs) what the hell, Dean? (laughs) That's hilarious. At least it beats uh, yelling in anger. (laughs) Hug it out, Dean. Dean draws his gun loaded with silver bullets because silver is the one thing that Sam found that was common to a number of legends that might slow down or kill the walking dead. And they explore Neil's house where they find a whole big shelf of dead plants. And yep, they know he's guilty. They know that Angela has been there. Either that or Neil just has a black thumb. Um, You know, could be, but who do you know who has a big shelf with multiple houseplants on it that are all just withered and dead. 
even the worst black thumb would at least toss them out when they died. (laughs) They find the door to the basement with the huge, heavy sliding lock on it. They both take a look at this lock and Dean's like, well, unless it's where he hides his porn, like you don't need to lock your porn in. You need to keep other people from getting to it. So like (laughs) it's a very conspicuous bolt lock. They find the basement apartment sort of nest area where Angela had been living since she came back from the dead. Living is is living the right word here where she had been existing (laughs) and find that she's not there. But there's a vent panel that comes off very easily leading to the outside and it's easy to see how she actually got out of there. So the big bolt upstairs is comically just for show, I guess. Poor Neil doesn't realize he's got a loose vent in his basement. Anyways, Dean figures it out pretty quickly who she might have gone after. If she killed Matt, well, Matt cheated on her with somebody. Her roommate was pretty really broken up about Matt's death. Maybe it was her. So maybe she's in danger now. They have to figure out who the zombie has gone out to kill because... That's what zombies do, apparently. So we flash to the roommate, looking at a photograph of Angela and Matt, looking at her reflection in the glass on the photo, when, again, this is how we discover the zombie is in the room. There's a knock on her door, and she goes to answer it, and there's nobody there, except Angela surprises her from behind, from inside the house. She finds a pair of scissors on a nearby counter as she chases her roommate back into their apartment, and attacks her with tries to attack her with the scissors they fight break a bunch of stuff Angela's still holding the scissors her roommate kicks out at her legs as she's lying on the floor and knocks Angela over Angela falls on the scissors and stabs herself in the chest and her poor roommate thinks oh my god I've killed her again rolls her over and you see the scissors sticking out of her chest Except she's not dead. She's still fighting and attacks her roommate again. Angela's about to stab her with the scissors when a gunshot fires and it's Dean and Sam have arrived and Dean starts shooting shooting Angela with silver bullets. It stops her for a second, but then she keeps running away and escapes out a window. Dean follows her, firing repeatedly. They ensure the girl's okay. Angela's run off into the night. They decide their only course of action now is to go talk to Neil again. They drive back to Neil's while they're trying to figure out, well, silver bullets don't kill her. What will actually work? And Sam comes up with staking her to her grave bed. So getting her back to the cemetery, getting her into her grave and staking her there. It's a good shift, though, for Dean from believing it was the father who brought back the girl because he couldn't let go of her. Like Dean feels like his father brought him back for similar reasons and can't yell at him about it. This has just such strong punishment resurrection vibes. You know what Cass will eventually say about how he views his own repeated resurrections that were unexplained through a lot of canon until he found out about Chuck and God and all that. But he viewed his resurrections as being punishments. And that's kind of how Dean sees his own resurrection at this point before he has an additional explanation for it. 
But moving on now that he's refocused his attention on Neil, who resurrected her just because he wanted to have her as his own girlfriend. This is beyond for Dean. And he's back on his game again. His head is clear again. He's focused to the point where he comes up with the exact perfect plan, figures everything out, realizes that Angela is back in the house, comes up with a plan to lure her out of the house and hopefully save Neil. But Neil refuses to go with them at this point, which is his undoing. Angela does follow them to the cemetery. You know, she overhears all of this, what Sam and Dean plan to do, even though it's a complete bluff, because we already know staking her into her grave bed. But Dean comes off on the spot saying he knows everything that Neil did. Like they were going to him for information, but they're the ones who are now figured out they need to bluff their way to get Angela to follow them back to the cemetery, that they need to do some sort of ritual over the grave to put her back in her grave and re-kill her or un-unkill her, whatever. They're in Neil's office and Dean asks where she is. And he says at his house, but Dean's like, looks around and sees a bunch of dead plants and is like, are you sure about that? And Neil kind of like glances over to a closet at the side of the room and Dean looks over and sees it and realizes she's right in there. This is when he comes up with that plan instantly on the spot to lure her. Sam's just looking at him like, what the hell are you talking about ritual? And Dean's like, well, got her to follow us. (laughs) When Neil refuses to leave with them, because Dean's basically trying to save his life here, Dean leans in and whispers to the guy, whatever you do, do not make her angry. Get away as fast as you can. Don't make her mad because she'll Do the same to you. Be careful. When Sam and Dean leave, he opens the closet, confronts her and says, you said you'd stay in the house. And she's like, I needed to see you. I need you to help me, you know, save me from these people. And he looks down and sees the wound on her chest that wasn't there before from the scissors. He sees that like fresh and like as fresh as a wound on a corpse can be. (laughs) But he knows that they're telling the truth, that she was the one who is committing these other murders. He realizes that she's been lying to him. She's like pleading with him to help save her, to take her to the cemetery, to stop uh, Sam and Dean from doing their ritual and killing her again. Even though she's got, you know, the scissors wound and multiple gunshot wounds now. She's like, we can we can do that just stop them, save me, and we can run away and start a new life together. And he's like, okay, okay. And he's like, I'll go get the car. You just wait here. Of course she doesn't. She follows him out to the car because he was just parked outside. I don't know where he was going to bring the car, like (laughs) whatever. She realizes that he was going to drive off without her and kills him for it. So too bad for this guy. He should have just walked away instead of trying to talk to her. Although she probably would have chased him out and killed him anyway. His real only chance would have been to to have left with the Winchesters. Meanwhile, back at the cemetery, Sam and Dean are lighting candles. They've already dug up the grave, have it open, and they're lighting candles around it like they're performing some sort of ritual. 
waiting for her to show up. And Sam's like, do you really think this is going to work? And Dean's like, it better because it was the only thing I could come up with. So, yeah, it was actually a pretty good story because it did work. It did draw her there. She does think they're doing a ritual to to kill her again. And the ritual is they're going to chase her down and stab her into the coffin. (laughs) Sam goes off in the woods with a gun trying to lure her out. And she sneaks up behind him. He turns around and knows she's there. She puts up the innocent act of, wait, I didn't ask to be brought back. I'm still a person. I'm still me. She then proves that she's absolutely not because Sam shoots her in the head. And instead of falling to the ground dead like a normal person would, she gets angry and chases him down. Like, (laughs) really does a number on him. It's believable that she did break his wrist here, like he says later on. She's about to break Sam's neck the way she just did Neil's, except Dean is there and he shoots her off of him and keeps shooting her until she falls over backwards into her own grave, where Dean runs up to her, jumps down in there with her and stakes her to the coffin. And for the third time in the episode, Dean gives a variation on what's dead should stay dead. That's the motto here. She's dead. She should stay dead. And he wishes he could could have stayed dead, I think, too, at this point, because he doesn't have an explanation for how he came back. Sam and Dean pack the dirt over her grave. And as they're leaving, they walk back past Mary's grave and Dean stops and turns and looks at it. And just takes it in for a moment. And Sam's like, do you want to stay for a while? And Dean's like, no. And he goes back to the car and packs up their gear. What's dead should stay dead. And Mary's not even there. There's nothing there to even raise. They're driving along through what looks like the alpine forests uh, that eastern Illinois is super famous for. So they must have driven quite a long ways to have found forests that look like this. Dean pulls over at a scenic overlook type place and just gets out of the car. And Sam's like, what the hell? What's going on? And gets out with him. And Dean finally is ready to talk. Dean says he's sorry for the way he's been acting. Sam just gives him, finally gives him the space to talk now that he's choosing to. Dean apologizes for acting the way he's been acting. And he's sorry for dad. He was your dad too. Dean believes it's his fault that John is dead. The way we knew Mary worried that Sam would blame her for everything that happened to him as a child because of her deal and everything else that would come along way down the road in the future. Dean right now feels 100% responsible for John being dead. He can't see past his own personal guilt over how he feels about what John had to sacrifice for him to be alive right now. Sam is the one who's been pestering him and pestering him and needling him about talking about his grief. Dean doesn't feel any grief, except for maybe the fact that he blames himself for Sam grieving now. He killed John in his mind and has not been able to address that. And Sam, who he knows is experiencing guilt and is making life choices because he believes that they are what John would have wanted him to do, like wanting to go out and hunt and not going back to school, 
Dean is also carrying the guilt of Sam making those sorts of choices because John is dead, which Dean feels personally responsible for. So it's not just the weight of his guilt for John's death, but the weight of Sam's grief for John's death. And Dean couldn't handle that. That's why he hasn't told Sam about any of this. And we're not even touching upon the secret that John foisted on Dean. We're just talking about the first half of the problem here. So there's still more to be uncovered. And this whole time, Dean has believed that Sam had figured it out what he did too about his miraculous recovery. And then five minutes later, John is dead and the cult is gone. Dean's like, it's not a complicated equation here, Sam. I'm sure you figured it out and you probably blame me for dad's death too. Like, he thought Sam would blame him and would be angry with him for this. He couldn't tell Sam that. Like, what what on earth was he supposed to say? Confirm the reason that Sam should hate him too now? Like, okay. Dean doesn't understand the mechanics of it or what happened, doesn't understand if John talked to the demon or whatever, but he knows the demon was involved and he knows that it's the reason he's alive and John is dead, that something happened here. Sam's like, we don't know that. And Dean's like, yeah, yeah, we do. We do. This whole conversation, Dean hasn't been able to look at Sam. He's just staring off into the distance, you know, leaning against the front of the car and He's crying, like proper crying, saying, you know, I never should have come back. It was unnatural. I was dead and I should have stayed dead. Look what's come of it. Dad's dead. The cult's gone. The demon's in the wind. He's like, so you wanted to know how I'm feeling? That's it. There's nothing you can say to make that okay. Dean finally turns to look at Sam, who finally looks away. And can't look at him anymore. And exactly what Dean feared. Will it come to pass that Sam can't forgive him for that? For being responsible for John's death? Or is Sam going, or they were going to realize, no, you did nothing. You're not responsible for it. Or is Sam just going to continue to blame him for random things that Dean had no control over? So a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B, you know. It's a long series. (laughs) They both blame each other for ridiculous things a lot over the years. But that's the end of the ridiculous blame for this episode. This just horrible weight of grief. That's not really grief, but guilt. Guilt and anger. And the anger we haven't quite addressed yet. Because, yeah, Dean's wallowing in his guilt. And it's coming out in bursts of anger. But we haven't gotten to the core meat of what he's angry about. We'll begin to scratch the surface of that in next week's episode. Season 2, Episode 5, Simon Said. We're finally back to the special children arc that we started in Season 1 with Sam and his powers and finding random other people who also had powers. Well, we're about to start finding more like Max, other children who whose mothers died in nursery fires and or didn't die in nursery fires. And we're going to realize that, well, the pattern varies <laughs> and the yellow eyed demon may have killed an 
awful lot more people than we have ever dreamed of, and they still don't have a weapon to take him down. Right now, they're just... At least this burden of guilt is not something Dean has to carry with him constantly now. Sam knows about it. Sam understands and will stop pestering him in this specific way about it because, yeah, there really is nothing he can do to relieve Dean of that burden other than finding out the truth of what happened, which they're both working on. And I think this, just having vented this, will improve their relations, at least as far as how they talk to each other and what they expect from each other. So, yay. (laughs) Poor zombie girl Dean. He's staked that piece of guilt back into its grave bed, hopefully, because he deserves to be alive. He's not a killer. He's not just grieving for his lost dad, you know? He's feeling directly responsible for that death. And now, hopefully, Sam will be able to help absolve him of that, now that he knows that that's how Dean's feeling. At any rate, I think that's enough yammering on this episode. Until next week, you can find me on Tumblr at spngeorge or at mittensmorgle, or you can email me at mittensmorgle at gmail, or you can join us on our Discord server where we can talk about how sad Dean is and like what we might do to make him feel better, which would not involve yelling at him. You know, poor guy. <laughs> anyway, I hope everybody has a lovely week. I'll talk to you soon. I can't believe I got through an episode without a thunderstorm. Or the cat scratching. Or my internet crashing. Or my computer glitching. Like, did that really happen? Did I just get all the way through that? I cannot believe it. Holy cow. Wow. <laughs>